We've now reached the stage in Democrats' midterm election desperation, where they've given up on touting their achievements, of which there are none. And they've even given up smearing the Republicans, which they've tried since the beginning of October to basically no effect. And we're now in the phase where they're just straight up lying about basic facts about the very recent past. The most common price of gas in America is $3.39, down from over $5 when I took office. None of that is true. First of all, I'm not even sure what Biden means by the most common price of gas. Does he mean the mode, as in mean, median, and mode, like you learned in middle school? If he does, that is a completely meaningless number, even if it were correct, which I doubt that it is. The average price of gas, which he may have been trying to say, and which is the actual measure that we use to track gas prices, that is a lot higher than he said yesterday. Not, I mean, not a lot, not like $10 higher, but it's high, it's significantly higher. It's $3.76. And then the price of gas when Biden took office was not over $5. It was actually $2.39, meaning gas prices have not dropped at least 32% since Biden's been in office. They've actually jumped more than 57%, not even close on any of those numbers. But Joe knows that. If his price numbers were correct, his poll numbers would be much higher. But the Democrats' poll numbers are low and dropping faster and faster by the minute as we're now 11 days out from Election Day. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. My favorite comment yesterday from Mac, who says, it is true that it's dangerous to let your children go back to public school, just not for the reasons they say. Well, that's true. I've said since the beginning, while there would be a lot of negative consequences to the kids being shut out of public school, it was actually probably one of the silver linings of the storm cloud of COVID. Uh, yes, your kid isn't learning arithmetic. Your kid probably wasn't learning arithmetic in school anyway, but at least now your kid isn't being taught that he's actually a little girl. You know, at least now he's not being taught gender queer by Maya Kababi. So there's always a silver lining, okay? The glass can, in fact, be half full. When we want to get the truth out there, we've got to speak to one another. When you want to talk to your friends and family, you got to check out Pure Talk. Right now, head on over to puretalk.com, enter code Knowles. With midterms coming up, here is something you should keep in mind. Every dollar you spend is a vote, and you're casting those votes over and over again for companies that are working hard to undermine your values. For instance, Verizon Wireless customers, you're supporting a company that canceled One America News for its support of President Trump. AT&T, your wireless customer, your wireless customer. AT&T customers, your wireless provider does not just support far-left CNN, it owns it. T-Mobile customers, your CEO openly advised Democrats on how to beat Trump in the 2020 election. Do not give your money to woke wireless companies. Give it to Pure Talk instead. Pure Talk not only believes in conservative American family values, but it also gives you the best service at a low cost. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of data for just $30 a month. The average family saves almost $1,000 per year. That is a thousand fewer votes for those cell phone companies that want to stop you from speaking freely. I am a Pure Talk customer. I absolutely love it. Here's what I like. Same network, same coverage, same phone. Lower bill. 
and 30 days risk-free. Right now is your chance to show corporate America that you're done funding their left-wing ideology. Go to puretalk.com and enter code Knowles to save 50% off your first month. That's puretalk.com, promo code Knowles for 50% off your first month. It's about to become a lot more difficult for the Democrats to lie. And this, of course, would be because the, the way that the Democrats project their lies and censor the truth from getting out is through social media, which is the new public square and is, has been controlled entirely by the libs. Until now, Mr. Musk, Mr. Elon Musk walks into Twitter headquarters carrying the sink. And then we're all waiting. What's going to happen? Is he going to do anything? Is there going to be a big change? Well, now we've seen the first big change, Elon Musk decapitating the leadership of Twitter Hours after becoming the owner of Twitter, Elon Musk just destroyed four of the company's executives with facts, logic, and pink slips. Uh, This would include the CEO of Twitter. And more importantly, this would include Vijaya Gaddy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Vijaya Gaddy was Twitter's, uh, at the time, top legal and policy executive when she led the team that banned Donald Trump. Which is, I, I don't think it can be overstated how significant this event was. This was a moment when woke oligarchs in Silicon Valley that have basically no accountability to the American electorate came in and decided to kick the duly elected sitting president of the United States out of the public square. This is one of the most brazen power grabs in the history of the United States. You might even call it a fundamental reordering of the American political order. And it was because this chick, Vijaya Gaddy, at Twitter decided to do it. And after that, you saw Facebook follow suit and Google follow suit. So she's gone. She's gone. Really, really uh, good news. The the execs are going to get some payouts. Uh, This includes Parag Agrawal. The CEO, the CFO, Ned Siegel, general counsel, Sean Edget. They're going to make 88 million bucks out of it. Again, a a small price to pay, especially if you're Elon Musk, to get rid of these people. Really, really good stuff. I've said the whole time, I don't know how the Elon Musk tenure at Twitter is going to go. I'm pretty hopeful. Uh, The guy is clearly not a leftist. He's not a hardcore leftist, at least. Is he a conservative? That I'm not... I just don't know. I don't know the man, and he's an eccentric public figure. Uh, but I said, I'll wait and see. All right. From what we are seeing, things are moving very much in the right direction. The one thing that Elon could do that I sort of hope he doesn't do, I hope he doesn't ban pseudonymous accounts. He has said before that he might ban pseudonymous accounts, the idea that people really ought to uh, stand behind their words. And I think there's a lot to that. But one of the issues, if you want to restore anything resembling the tradition of free speech in America, you need to recognize that it's not just about overt censorship, but it's about this, this well, the, the cancel culture. It's about this perverse sort of system of standards that we have today, where you, it's not just that you'll lose your social media account if you say true things that are politically incorrect, but you could face professional consequences. You could face consequences in your school. You could be ostracized. You could be <laughs> investigated by the federal government for that matter. And so it, with a, a 
current free speech regime throughout the country that is so perverse, that is so hostile to the true things and to good things and to the moral order. Uh, pseudonymous accounts are actually one way to free up speech a little bit. The fact that, the fact that probably my favorite accounts on Twitter are not accounts with people's real pictures and real names attached to them. Well, part of that is because those accounts don't need to worry about being fired, about being investigated, about being kicked out of school. So they can say things that are true and funny and good. And so I hope Elon, as he purges the bots, as he lifts the insane woke rules on speech, as he fires the people who were enforcing this, this leftist censorship policy, I hope he doesn't doesn't go a little bit too far or, you know, blast away with a shotgun that, that takes out some good things too. Uh, the pseudonymous counts, I think, need to, st- to stay. I'm very pro-suit. Anyway, all of this is very good news for conservatives. And then we're matching that with really, really good news on the political front heading into the midterm elections. The, the polls right now are looking good. The generic ballot that was just released by USA Today not a right-wing outlet, a a center-to-center-left outlet, uh, shows Republicans up four points over Democrats. That's 49 to 45. Uh, Huge change. USA Today, uh, previously in July, said Democrats were leading the Republicans 44 to 40. So that's just a a complete flip. Previously, the Democrats were up by four. Now the Republicans are up by four. So that's a delta of eight. Uh, And it's even better than that. There is one analyst, uh, the Mason-Dixon polling management direct, managing director, uh, Brad Coker, just told Daily Wire that he thinks actually the polling averages are underestimating Republican support by about five percentage points. So he says, I think the GOP will end up with 54 Senate seats. I don't track House races district by district, but I generally think the Republican Party will net a gain of somewhere between 25 and 35 seats. I saw my friend Ted Cruz the other night. We had a dinner that extended late into the night. And one of the big questions we were all debating at this dinner, what's the number of Republican Senate seats that we're going to get? And I tell you, I've been having these debates and conversations with Senator Cruz, actually, and and with other people as well for six months now. And six months ago, people were saying, I don't know, maybe we'll get 51 seats, maybe 52 seats. For for a while, people were saying, we're not, we're actually not going to retake the Senate. Uh, 55, 45%, we retake the Senate. Maybe now I'm feeling a little more confident, a little. At this dinner, very smart people who are very involved in this and keeping their eyes on the uh, on the data all the time, they're saying, I don't know, 52 seats, 53 seats. Some people even saying 54, which seems ambitious, but could be happening. Look at the individual races. Blake Masters right now, who people wrote off, they wrote him off months ago, even a lot of conservatives. And I love Blake Masters. I think the guy's a great candidate. Uh, it's his first time running for anything. So he's a little green on the trail, but I think his views are really, really solid. I think he sees where the future of the party has to go. He's, he's run a good campaign, really good campaign from that perspective. Blake is surging in Arizona. Politico, which had, had written the, the election off, had said that it was, a, it was a, a Democrat seat, has just shifted it back to a toss-up. Masters has been lagging behind Kelly. 
for, for a while now. Now a new poll from Trafalgar and Daily Wire puts Masters behind Kelly by one percentage point. Very, very close race. And then you're getting even better news right now in the races in Georgia. So you've got two very, very important races in Georgia. You've got Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock for the Senate and theoretically could determine the balance of the Senate, would be very important for a Republican majority. And you've got the governor's race there because Stacey Abrams has been pretending to be governor of Georgia ever since she lost. Incredible news from Rasmussen polling. Rasmussen polling, which is Republican leaning, but uh, still got a good track record. Rasmussen is uh, showing Walker up by five points, 48 to 43%. Rasmussen shows that uh, Brian Kemp has jumped to a 10-point lead over uh, Stacey Abrams, 51 to 41. So this would be absolutely humiliating for uh, Stacey Abrams because her whole claim was that in 2018, the election was rigged, it was razor thin, and really it was her race. And uh, that's just that claim is just falling apart right now. If she runs again and she loses by 10 points, it's brutal. Now, who knows what shenanigans the Democrats are going to pull? They've pulled them before and they've pulled them in Georgia. But can, can they pull the kind of shenanigans that can overcome a 10-point lead? I'm not so sure about that. And even Herschel Walker, they threw the kitchen sink at Herschel Walker in, in October. They said, he's, a, he's the worst guy in the world. He's committed all these terrible sins. His whole family hates him. I mean, just the, the worst muckety muck, dirty, filthy kind of politics. And it doesn't seem to have hurt him very much at all. So what are the Democrats doing about this? The Democrats are uh, looking ahead and <laughs> not, not only I mean, I assume they're doing their absolute best to salvage this election, but they're looking ahead. They're saying, man, this is going so poorly for us that we've already got to deny the 2024 election. What are you actually suggesting we do if Trump wins fair and square? Let's forget about any like foul play or anything like that. If he wins in 2024, what are you going to do? Are you going to respect that result? I mean, I don't Final accept the premise matter. of your question. If he wins in 2024, let's forget the foul play. How can I forget the foul play when no, right no, now if, the Republican Party is trying to change and, state and legislature rules, clear. voting rules? Shadi, right now they are taking steps to make sure that the 2024 so, election is not a free okay. and fair election. You keep well, this just is pushing Mandy. that you're away. You to, cannot you're both not willing sides to this. accept that outcome then. That's concerning no, to not, me. I'm not, hold on, hold on. I, I'm, I'm willing to accept an outcome of a free and fair election. Shadi, as of right now, do you believe the 2024 election will be a free and fair election if black people are denied the right to vote, if there is when racist black gerrymandering people are denied continues, the right to vote, if that, election workers are threatened with death? Black people have been, t- the, the vote has been taken away from them? I it's mean, the first you've heard the black just, voters are being disenfranchised exa- in America. This is exaggerated Sorry, rhetoric. <laughs> so there, there you have it. There you have it. And this shouldn't be surprising to people who who understand the the leftist point of view. When the left uses the word democracy, they don't really mean democracy. Obviously not, because they say that that the people voting for Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. The people, the Italians voting for Georgia Maloney is a threat to democracy. The Hungarians voting for Viktor Orban is a threat to democracy. The people electing someone by definition is an expression of democracy. So obviously democracy doesn't mean 
what they seem to think it means. For the, the left, democracy just means liberalism. And, and so the people have to vote for liberalism. They have to. Liberalism necessarily, according to the libs, has to triumph at the ballot box in order for it to be a legitimate election. It's not just that sometimes the Republicans steal the elections or sometimes the Democrats steal the elections. It's according to the libs, every election that the Democrats win, even if they steal it, is legitimate. And every election that the Republicans win, even if it is completely above board, you can't point to a single problem with it, every single election has to be illegitimate because liberalism and democracy to them are the exact same thing. And because the only reason, because liberalism is so manifestly good and true and in everyone's interests, the only reason that you could not vote for the liberal is because you were not permitted to through suppression or you were misinformed, you were deceived, it was a fraud. It's this ignorance, it's a false consciousness you're laboring laboring under. But either way, it has to be illegitimate. Now, it's ironic, of course, because we've heard for two years now that the greatest threat to our democracy is denying elections. They're already denying the next one. Of course they will. And what I've been trying to tell people from the very beginning, especially since we've heard all this hullabaloo BS about January 6th and the January 6th committee, and the greatest threat to our country is to deny our sacred democracy. The liberals do not give a damn about the democracy. They, they openly deride the democracy when the democracy elects people that they don't like. Stop taking it seriously. Stop taking the bait. Now, I think uh, finally people are getting that argument because you, you're seeing that reflected in the polls. The, the Democrats went all in. It's just amazing. They went all in this year on, on really two issues. They said the two issues that Americans care about are abortion and January 6th, 2021, this, this sort of unruly event at the Capitol. That's it. And by the way, I, I care a lot about abortion. I'm very pro-life, very, very strongly pro-life. Very few people care about abortion on the pro-life side or the pro-life pro-choice side when, when they're actually casting their vote. It matters as a top issue to something like 15% of people. And then on January 6th, no, nobody cares. <laughs> like truly, a negative people care cares about January 6th. So there are, they're already trying to deny it. But of course, it is not illegitimate for the people to reject liberalism. In fact, I think the people should always reject liberalism. I think liberalism is just wrong and bad in all of its forms. <laughs> it's, it, it should be cast aside. We don't, it's not good. And people have good reason to reject the, the liberalism and the terrible liberal candidates. Once again, even putting aside that terrible debate performance from John Fetterman against Dr. Oz, here again, we have an, a new example of John Fetterman showing that he is not fit for the U.S. Senate. You know, and, you know, you talk about the, 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 liber, the liberty of, of state, a statue um, has never had a, an inscription inside that said, you know, send your your tired huddled uh, masses and put them on a bus and turn them into a, a, a cheap political stunt. I, I again, I don't mean to make fun of uh, 
Fetterman because he has brain damage. I think his wife is obviously a complete psychopath to put him on the campaign trail. Democrats, obviously very cynical because his, I believe he had his stroke the day before the primary day, right around the primary. So they said, well, we're already in it. He's going to win the primary. So let's just Let's just weather this thing out and hope that we can just force him into the Senate. And then he won't do anything in the Senate. We'll, we'll do everything for him. But it'll, it'll be just fine. No big deal. Because the, the people don't, don't matter here for the, for the libs. It's, it, it, he'll just be one more vote for Joe Biden, one more vote for the liberal establishment. That, that's, that's fine. And now the people are looking at that man and they're saying, no, that's not the leadership we want. So Fetterman has a pretty legit excuse as to why he is not fit, as to why he is giving such a bad performance on the campaign trail. Other Democrats don't have that kind of excuse. I think the candidate who's actually collapsing in real time, even more dramatically than Fetterman, is Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York. Kathy Hochul, the other day in a debate with Lee Zeldin, the Republican who is beating her right now in the polls, uh, Zeldin kept hitting her on crime, and Kathy Hochul said, oh, Lee, why is it so important to you to lock up criminals? Come on, Lee. Why, what's a big deal about this? <laughs> New York voters looking at her saying, lady, are you kidding me? <laughs> Crime is spiking everywhere. And yeah, I'm with that guy. I don't even know what he believes about anything else, but I'm definitely not with you if you think crime doesn't matter. Big, big misstep. And then again, just yesterday, we see Kathy Hochul in, <laughs> making the closing argument, I guess, for her campaign now on the issue of masking up little toddlers again. So let's talk about exactly what RSV is. These are the symptoms. I want parents to be aware of them. Uh, Usually fall and winter. It's like a common cold, but it does hit younger children, and it's really frightening. It's not new at all, something we've seen before. But, you know, infants as young as six months old uh, have been known to contract this. So it's hard to keep kids safe. You know, think about the fact that a year ago, you know, before a year ago, we, a lot of kids were wearing masks in a daycare center or in schools, and that did per- give them some level of protection. We're not mandating this, but we're saying parents, you know, you got other kids, you got kids in school, preschool, and you got a baby at home, you really might just want to take these extra precautions. And by now, kids are more socialized to the idea of wearing a mask. It's not as strange to them. It's not as like, what is this all about? There's really cute masks out there. I've seen a lot of them. Uh, so that's something I'm encouraging all parents to consider. Is this woman trying to lose? Is she actually saying, how, what, how many days are we out from the election now? 12 or some, 11 or 12 days from the election. And she's saying, hey, parents, I'm not going to mandate it yet, but you should really mask up your two-year-olds. Yeah, put the masks on. Two, two and a half years now after more, yeah, just about two and a half years after 15 days to slow the spread. Put, put masks on your two-year-olds. Vote for us. We're the party of fresh ideas. <laughs> of course not. Because they're out of everything. And again, I actually see a little bit of, I, I think I can see the thought process here if there was a thought process, which is the Democrats have been dead on every single campaign issue other than COVID for most of this. Okay, let's double down. COVID's very serious. We've got to go back to COVID. We've got to mask people up. It's completely it's completely misreading the moment and misreading the polls, which show that the Democrats are down even on COVID now. They've got nothing left unless they, unless they pull a rabbit out of a hat to really rig up this election. Unless the voting, the vote counting 
takes three months here. <laughs> they pause it on election day. They say, oh, we got to work something out. Don't worry. Unless that, I, it just seems to me that the Democrats are, are like cows on the way to the slaughterhouse <laughs> when it comes to these midterm elections. You know, I'm so excited to present to you a new three-part series from Jordan Peterson on Daily Wire Plus that is on marriage. I, I, I am obviously so grateful to have a wonderful marriage with sweet little Elisa. Uh, with marriage rates at an all-time low right now in the United States and a birth rate that is continuing to fall, everyone needs to watch this series, especially young people. The statistics are showing that younger people are getting married much later in life and less frequently as well. Now, I know that our audience here is not filled with uh, Peter Pans, but just in case there are a few stragglers there who are uh, late to the marriage game and uh, are not, you know, have not taken holy orders or something like that, consecrated singlehood or something, consider this a pleasant, especially for the boys, by the way, consider this a pleasant kick in the teeth. Don't be selfish. Or as Jordan Peterson says, stop having cocaine-fueled binge parties and make your bed. And for those of you married folks who have let time and work and outside forces get in the way, Jordan will also show you how to navigate through those moments and get back to that romantic, fun adventure that you had at the beginning. Daily Wire Plus members can watch the first episode of Jordan Peterson's On Marriage with two more episodes coming out soon. If you're not yet a member, go to dailywire.com slash Knowles to join today. Remember, your membership really helps us prevent the total collapse of society as we know it. Speaking of kids, Disney has uh, just fulfilled uh, one of the, the long, long-standing dreams of radical liberals with nothing better to do than to make up problems. Disney, di- well, I'll, listen, I'll let some random adult on Twitter uh, explain the significance. This is not a drill, all quote, all caps. Disney Plus finally made a short with a plus size lead. It's called Reflect, and it's part of the short circuit short series. Let's just say I was sobbing. At first, I thought that this was parody. I, I don't think it is. I think What's the story here? The story is that Disney releases short films sometimes, which very few people see. And in this case, they made a a short film about a fat girl. And this does not seem like international news to me, but it was trending on social media. There's been a lot of commentary about it. This is supposed to be very, very significant. And apparently it's very, very significant to this woman, not a drill. Finally, they finally made a short film about a fat girl. I didn't know this was something we were all longing for, that anyone really was longing for, but it had finally, finally, and this one was brought to tears over the sobbing. Then another adult woman took to Twitter, said, uh, 16-year-old me needed this Disney short before I quit ballet because I didn't want to be the fat girl in class anymore. I'm glad the little ones will have this. 10 out of 10 for Reflect. It's so wonderful. And so I look at these two accounts. There were a lot of others. These were just the ones that were lumped in with the trending. (laughs) They're going completely viral all over Twitter. Adult number one, pronouns in bio. Checks out. Adult number two, pronouns in bio, self-identified dog mom. 
and a teacher. So that's good. This is who you want educating your kids, right? You always want the pronouns in bio educating your kids, right? No, I don't think so. Uh, I don't have much of an opinion about a Disney making a short film about a fat girl. I Okay, that's fine. I don't watch short Disney films. I don't, I don't watch new long Disney films. I don't, that's okay. I, I, though I, I have opinions about a great many things. This is not something that I have particularly strong feelings about. However, I do have strong feelings about childless adults who are completely obsessed with Disney. And more broadly, I have strong opinions about childless adults who are obsessed with children's things. That's weird. You shouldn't do that. I, I have friends of mine who, as adults, childless adults, sometimes even just alone, will go to Disney World or will, they just can't wait for the next children's movie to come out. And they're going to go see the next children's movie on the, the first day of the movie. Or they buy toys. They buy children's toys for themselves just to have the toys. And so they get to play with the toys. And that, it's, it's not just a few weird people that I'm making fun of. This is a social phenomenon that seems to be growing, in particular among my generation, the millennials. And it's really weird. And it's obviously related to the, the fact that our generation is not having children. And they're not getting married and they're delaying everything and they're not having as many kids and they're not having kids at all in many cases. And these are obviously related. Because there is, there actually is something natural about wanting to experience childhood things as an adult. That's called nostalgia. That, that's totally normal. And there's a way to do it. The way to do it is to have kids, and then you get to experience it with your kids. You get to take your kid to the Disney movie. And I, that's not something that I'm exactly eager to do, but maybe I'll get a kick out of part of the movie. Or, you know, you buy your kid toys, and then you play with the toys with the kid. And that actually can be kind of fun. That's good. That, that's, that's the right way to channel your nostalgia for childhood and to keep your imagination alive and all these things. The the bad way is to pretend to be a child. The bad way is to never grow up. Because when you're a child, you do child, childish things. And when you, childlike things, you know, you do the things that children do. When you grow up, you're supposed to, when you become a man, you're supposed to put away the things of a child. There's actually a Kenny Loggins song about this. The Pooh Corner song, you know, help me if you can, I've got to get back. You know, it's actually a pretty good song. And it's a song he wrote in high school. I've mentioned it once or twice on the show about how he wandered out into the hundred acre wood with, when he's looking for, you know, his friends, Winnie the Pooh and everything, but he can't find them. He's wandered a little bit too far today and he can't get back. He can't get back to childhood because he's graduating high school now. He's becoming a man. And it, it leaves you with a little bit of longing, but it kind of some hope for the future and say, okay, I'm going to do bigger things now. I'm going to do more adult things now. But, and then he, when he had children, Kenny Loggins, he added a verse to the song. And he said, I actually did get to go back to the hundred acre wood because now my little kid has my little Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh bear and he's hugging him and I, I get to see the world again now through his eyes. Wow, what a wonderful thing. But don't, for goodness sakes, people, don't be overgrown children. Whatever, who, who cares about the fat girl in the Disney movie or the for short film or whatever? 
that doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is you getting really, really excited to go see a kid's movie. <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that. You need, if you are getting really, really excited for the kid's stuff, you need to grow your interests. And you need to look to higher things because you're an adult and you got to act like a man. Usually I do the Don Corleone impression when it's some guy whining about how he can't get a girl or something like that or he can't. But you, you got to act like a man, not just from the sex perspective, but from the age perspective. You got to act like a man, act like a grown up. What's the matter with you? Speaking of movies, uh, there's some advice that's gone viral on TikTok. This, of course, is the advice that uh, white people... Uh, who go to see Black Panther, the new Black Panther movie on opening weekend, are in fact anti-black. No woman, no this message is to all our would-be accomplices and white allies. This message is to all the white people who have BLM in their bio. If you really want to prove to black people that you love us and you care about us and you are down for the cause, do not go see that movie opening weekend. You buy your ticket, you give it to a black person or a black family who can't afford to go. And then you go sit at that theater in front of the doors. You make sure that every black person in that theater can enjoy that movie in peace. You make sure that you use your body to block us from anybody who would be coming in that theater to do us harm. That is your job. You can go see it on another weekend. Go see it on the second or third weekend. But the first weekend, that's for us. To do anything other than this is anti-black. <laughs> so you got to give her credit for a good grift, for a good con. It's worked on a lot of people. Uh, this is what all of the anti-racism stuff is about. It's just, a, it's just a power move. It's just a con to say, hey, give me something. Hey, you, shut up. You shut up. Let me do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the if give me money give me whatever that's all it is it's a really cynical shakedown kind of thing as she is expressing but hey if the con's working for her I guess uh, you know there's there's some cleverness involved on this one in particular though I have to say fine by me she, she can have my ticket to the new Black Panther movie that Black Panther was so bad I had to watch it because Daily Wire made me because I had to give a review it was so terrible. I didn't enjoy a single second of it. It's not a good movie. And I assume, since sequels are generally not as good as uh, the first, uh, I assume Black Panther 2 is going to be even worse. So yes, Call, I am the new Ibram Kendi. I am basically Robin D'Angelo here. You may, lady, you may have my ticket to Black Panther. I don't have a ticket. I don't have one yet, but if I find one, you can have it. I'm very excited because the best time of the week is about to start right now, baby. Our mailbag. Our mailbag is sponsored by Pure Talk. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, enter promo code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S, to get 50% off your first month. All right, let's start with the voicemail bag. Take it away. Hello, Michael. Uh, Grant here, an avid listener from Scotland. So I'm hoping to get married next year in August. Um, to a wonderful lady um, who I've known for about 10 years. The interesting thing is that we're both committed Christians and so, we are both virgins. We're both 33 years old and we've, we've never had sex. We, we believe, of course, um, that sex has been placed within the bounds of marriage by God. Society in general doesn't seem to value virginity at all or, or 
saving yourself from that. It's just seen as a, here in the UK, it's seen as an eccentricity. Um, <laughs> I've even been um, accused, I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, it's been suggested that I'm, a, I'm an incel. <laughs> I would argue that I'm a, a V-cell. I'm voluntarily uh, celibate until marriage. Just wondering if the if there's the same culture in the, in the United States as there is over here. I would hope that public Christianity being somewhat stronger in the US, that there'd be a more respect for those who wait until marriage, even um, like myself and my fiancé, people who wait until they're in their 30s. Is that a thing, would you say? Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Well, uh, listen, uh, good on you for, for doing that. Um, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, in the United States, it's pretty much the same situation. The uh, uh, public Christianity has collapsed broadly. Um, the idea of saving you know, your virginity has uh, also uh, basically uh, collapsed. And so, um, no, here in, here in the United States, you would be considered eccentric, but it's good. Sometimes it's very good to be eccentric, and I suspect that will uh, serve you in your marriage. So uh, stand strong. All right, next question. Hi, Michael. My name is Hunter, and I'm a stay-at-home mom to two beautiful little girls, and I have a husband who is the love of my life and the best man I've ever known. When we met, I was all about the, I'm spiritual Christian, but not religious nonsense. (laughs) That has changed so much over the years, and honestly, because of you, I'm seriously considering converting to the Catholic faith. It is the most important thing to me as a mother to pass on my faith to my children, which my husband is totally fine with. My husband, however, was never raised with any concept of God. Regardless of that, he is the most faithful and loving husband and father. I'm wondering what advice you would give to me to help bring my husband to God. Thank you so much for all you do, Michael. Oh, thanks so much. Wonderful to uh, hear that. And you're in a way better position than a lot of people who write in to the show and say, look, I've got a different religious view from my husband and he's totally opposed to mine and it's creating a lot of friction. That, that's a tough situation. Here, it seems like your husband is totally open to it. But as you say, he was just, just not raised without any, forget proper formation, without any religious formation at all. So I think what you ought to do is uh, one, you know, Take your kids to mass, and uh, you know, raise them up in the faith. As uh, and, you know, as you, especially as you're sort of coming into it, and uh, and then I would just tell your husband, look, this matters to me. I think it is true. I think it is good, and I think it's important. And and it's not. I think it's very true. <laughs> it's not just uh, like a kind of take it or leave it thing. I think it's very true. I think it's very good. I think it's very important. And so you're still coming to your husband and saying, look, I respect you've got your own views. You're the head of the household even. Uh, But this is really important to me. So I'd really, uh, it would mean a lot if you would at least kind of look into it, you know, and maybe take it seriously. And maybe, I don't know, you have him read a few books on the subject. Maybe you have him read the Bible. Maybe you have him read... C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton or some more modern book or some older book or, I, you know, I don't know. You know your husband better than me or you have him talk to a priest or you have him talk to your other Catholic friends or who, you know. But 
introduce him to it. It's not his fault that he doesn't know anything about it, you know, and, and you could play a real role here in pulling him in. And then as my friend Andrew Clavin points out, uh, if you play some role in someone converting, then you get an extra toaster in heaven. So that's one, I think you're in a good position. And uh, I would, I would just nurture that. You know, that's what mothers do. Mothers nurture. So you can, you can nurture that. Keep going. Hi, Michael. So for over a decade now, uh, the left has used institutions with very large reach, uh, such as CNN, HuffPo, and uh, Kotaku, to target and condemn low-profile individuals uh, for opinions that they view as racist or sexist, and to thus cause them socioeconomic damage. Now, I've noticed that uh, more recently, conservatives have responded in kind. You know, examples uh, include Candace Owens and Libs of TikTok, who are not afraid to call out individual leftists on Twitter for their bad behavior. And not only do I not condemn this practice when it comes to the right, I actually applaud it. Uh, because, first of all, we have to fight the left on their own terms, and secondly, because, let's face it, no one's going to lose their job because Candace Owens condemned them. Uh, my question to you is, how do we determine when to fight the left on their own battlefield and when we have to take a stand for absolute moral principles, even when it will make it more difficult for us to engage in battle? Thanks for your moral clarity and love the show. Thanks very much. You you always need to take a stand for absolute moral principles. There is never a time when you d- can get away from that. <laughs> so, and and th- very often that's the way that this question is phrased. Well, when do we need to stand up for our moral principles and when can we get a little bit looser so we can sling some mud at the left? That's not, that's not the battle. That's not the question. The question is, do we fight tough or do we fight weak? You can fight weak in a very moral way. Or I'm sorry, you can fight tough in a very moral way. You can fight weak in a very immoral way. You know, I mean, this was the absolute lie of, of never Trump and the, the kind of squishy types up, up until today is they would say, well, you know, uh, I just want to lose with dignity. There were, some, there were some people who had different objections to Trump, so I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. Some people who had different fears and things like that. But you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the David French types. <laughs> you know, the David French types who, is, who essentially said we need, we need to lose with dignity. There's nothing dignified about that. I don't think there's anything moral about that. So no, you can, you can own the libs in a way that is moral, where you're speaking the truth with love for the good, and you, and you can own the libs in a way that's immoral, where you can lie about people and be, you know, needlessly vicious and, you know, cruel and unjust. And so you can, you can obviously do that too. Uh, but I think we need to be tough and moral. And I, I think that when you're tough in a moral way, you're going to be much more effective. Keep going. Hey, Michael, this is Vincent. Uh, so the election is pretty uh, soon. And I'd like to know... If the Republicans win the House and or Senate, what is the number one priority you think they should focus on? If the Republicans win the House and or Senate, well, that's, hmm, depends on if it's just the House or just the Senate, but let's say they win both. What should they do? Well, they're going to want to launch all sorts of investigations against the left, which they should, that should happen, but it shouldn't be the top part of the agenda. Uh, The first thing they have to do is obstruct. 
So they have to obstruct the Democrats and Joe Biden's agenda. That's, the, that's what happens when you've got divided government. You've got the Democrats have the White House and the Republicans have the Congress. Is Okay, good. First thing, stop the bleeding. Okay, Then the Republicans should obstruct Biden's nominees in, I assume, most cases. But uh, that, that would be a good start because the nominees have been absolutely horrific. So you got to stop that. Then, really... The only major issue right now where the Republicans could have real legislative power before 2024 would be on something like funding the war in Ukraine, which is really important, by the way. The war in Ukraine, it, well, one, <laughs> could uh, see us all go up in you know, smoke in a nuclear war. Uh, first major war in Europe since World War II, and there, the threats of nukes have been lobbed around quite a lot recently. Uh, but also it's driving up energy prices, also threatens to destabilize the entire world. Also, the energy prices are driving up inflation. So it's having global effects pretty much everywhere. Uh, what I, I would recommend is that Republicans use the power of the purse that they have, and uh, even, even the power to declare war, even though I don't think Joe Biden's going to ever use that. I think he'll just keep running this proxy war with Russia without ever actually declaring war. Uh, they can use that to force Joe Biden to negotiate with Russia and say, look, in order to have an effective foreign policy, you need strength and diplomacy. And so far, the Biden administration did the worst of all worlds, which is they showed only diplomacy in the beginning and is to the point of inviting Russia to invade and no strength whatsoever said, we're not going to stop you from invading. And we're also going to take the sanctions off Nord Stream 2. And then once Putin invaded, they completely flipped. And now it's all strength in that they're just funneling money into Ukraine and fighting a proxy war, and in some cases escalating a proxy war with Russia, but no diplomacy whatsoever. So there's no off-ramp. There's no way to get out of it. I mean, you think of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was the strength, which was the blockade that Kennedy wouldn't call a blockade around Cuba. But then there was a ton of diplomacy, which is actually what decided the thing. When they took the, the missiles out of Turkey, and when you had constant contact between the U.S. and Russia to de-escalate before the war. So Republicans could play an important role there as well because they have the power of the purse and, uh, at least in theory, the, some, some power over the declaration of war. Okay, now the old school mailbags. Hello, Michael. Usually arguments against infanticide are easy to hold ground on. But there's one related point that I'm unsure of. In cases of rape, mothers are morally obligated to give birth to the child because the unborn life still has value. Does this imply that we are also morally obligated to donate organs, say kidneys, to those who would die without them, since those lives also have value? This line of thinking seems flawed, but I haven't been able to come up with a simple answer. I'm interested in thoughts both from a Catholic perspective and, if applicable, how I also might present an answer an atheist might relate to more. Thank you for everything that you do. Love the show. Sure, well, my answer, I think, will satisfy both of those criteria, which is, uh, no, you are not morally obligated to donate all of your organs away to people. Even the organs that you don't necessarily uh, need to function day to day, you know, an extra kidney or something like that. And uh, the reason for this is not, uh, the question hinges not merely on the value of the other person, but it hinges on the purpose of organs. Everything has a purpose, an end, a telos. The end of the purpose of the leftist tears tumbler is to 
give me delicious, salty leftist tears. The purpose of the microphone is to transmit my dulcet tones into your ears. And the purpose of my kidneys is to filter my blood. The purpose of my lungs is to uh, take in oxygen and expel carbon dioxide. Here is the crucial part. The purpose of a woman's womb is to grow her baby. The purpose of a placenta is to transmit nutrients between the mother and the the child. And so uh, even from that perspective, a, a woman does not have a right to murder a child in the womb for, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but in part because the, the womb is for the child and the, <laughs> the, the mother has an obligation and a, uh, to love that child and, and to take care of that child. That's, that's part of uh, her purpose. And uh, so the, the, it's, it's a purpose of the end of organs. You can see that specifically, or just like the end of all sorts of created things. Um, and more broadly, you can see this in the, the very purpose of motherhood as motherhood. Um, but people get very confused about that because uh, they, don't, they don't understand that the physical world could have, uh, you, you could derive metaphysical conclusions from the physical world because we become very stupid in modernity and we, we just think in this really shallow materialistic kind of way, which is very incoherent. Uh, but I think, I, I think that answer would be satisfying, certainly from a Catholic perspective, but also just from the perspective of the natural law. I mean, it would be it was satisfying from the perspective of philosophy from ancient Greece all the way up until five minutes ago, basically. Now we get to the much more philosophically satisfying part of the show. And, oh, I'm sorry, physically satisfying part of the show. Uh, that is when I kill Jake Crane. That's right. He lost the fantasy football game. I won. Now he has to eat a poison chip at, while I watch. The rest of the show continues now. You don't want to miss it. If you're not a member, click the link in the description and join us.